To know where the internet is going, you have to know where it's been. Every episode will examine the sites, terms, and personalities that have defined the online world. So strap on your chrono belts, time cadets. It's time to take a trip to the Old Wide Web. Episode 2, the day the internet went dark. Hi, I'm Bill Meeks, and welcome to another episode of the Old Wide Web. I'm here to teach you the history of the internet. Whether you're a newbie or an old tech head, I'm going to give you an overview of how the internet evolved into what it is today. Oh, and I want to go ahead and thank everyone who responded to me on Twitter and through email with comments and suggestions for the show. I'm glad to see that most of you are enjoying it. Uh, now, I did get the Twitter account set up for the show. That's Old Wide Web Pod because Old Wide Web was taken for some reason. But yeah, it's at Old Wide Web Pod. Now, I'm really excited about today's episode. Before there were Facebook groups or Twitter revolutions, there was one internet protest that stood above the rest, so much so that it was named one of the top 10 moments in the web's first 10 years by Yahoo. And funnily enough, Yahoo was a significant part of this story. But to set this up, I want you to close your eyes, relax, and transport yourself back to 1996. The year is 1996. The date? February 8th. You wake up. Grab a cup of coffee and head to your computer to search on Yahoo for a new web host. But something is different. The standard gray background is pitch black. The text is a bold white. And there, on the front page, is an ominous description. It says Yahoo has turned its pages black for 48 hours in support of the Coalition to Stop Net Censorship. President Clinton signed legislation that includes a provision which limits freedom of expression on the internet. With this act, the very same materials which are legally available today in bookstores and libraries could be illegal if posted on worldwide websites or Usenet groups. Today is the day the internet went dark, and the internet's future as a free and open platform hangs in the balance. The bill that got everybody riled up was called the Telecommunications Act. Specifically, they had an issue with Title V which was referred to as the Communications Decency Act, it sought to criminalize the posting of quote-unquote indecent material on the internet. On the surface, it was meant to protect children from stumbling across pornography, but individuals and organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation warned that the vague language of the bill would lead to censorship of risque literature and art, as well as things as mundane as medical information. If this act stood, they suggested, it would have a chilling effect on the growth of the web. But the webmasters who were busy building the web weren't just going to roll over and take it. They banded together and agreed to present their web pages with a black background to coincide with President Clinton's signing of the bill. And it wasn't just a bunch of small fringe sites that chose to participate. The big boys like Yahoo, Netscape, PC Magazine, Webcrawler, the Software Publishers Association, and even Senator Patrick Leahy all came out to play. Unlike broadcast networks, the internet wasn't a network for the people, it was a network by the people, and they weren't going to let anyone tell them what they could and couldn't put on it. 
Enter Shabir Safdar, co-founder of Voters Telecommunications Watch. Back in the early 90s, I was living in New York, and I and a collaborator named Stephen Cherry and a a gentleman named Alexis Rosen, who runs one of the oldest internet providers in New York City, wanted to allow people to have a say in the way that laws and regulation and policy were starting to come up and be made around the internet. It was it was looking to be a really big problem. And it seemed like people in Washington who were making this policy didn't necessarily know anything about the internet. And we were concerned. And we thought, you know, if we can just let people know what is being proposed and what is being discussed and we can spread the word wide enough, we could actually do a service so that when people had an opinion about, hey, that's a bad idea or I'm opposed to that, we could also give them a place where they could could vent in the traditional American democratic way, which often involves screaming or complaining, but is in fact how the process works. <laughs> Along with his friend Jonas Seiger, a fellow online advocate, Safdar attempted to mount a strong opposition to the CDA long before it was even passed. Senator Exxon from Nebraska proposed uh, a, a way to regulate the internet that would have been more like TV, uh, in which the whole internet would have had to adhere to like a, a community standard of the most conservative community in the U.S. And apart from that not being workable, as we know from the fact that there's no country borders online, uh, it was just a bad idea. It would have really suppressed a lot of free speech. And so we uh, assembled a coalition to oppose it with uh, my longtime uh, – at that point, who became my longtime collaborator, Jonas Seiger, who is at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and then went to the Center for Democracy and Technology, and the actual Electronic Frontier Foundation, the ACLU, um, EPIC, and, uh, and many others, a lot of people working on the free speech issue. And uh, the bill actually was called S314, so we had a coalition called Stop 314. And we worked hard as the bill went through Congress, and unfortunately, it got attached to the telecommunications reform bill, which the entire telecom industry was was lobbying hard for passage. And once that happened, we kind of knew we were going to lose the battle in Congress and have to fight it in the courts. Safdar, Seeger, and their colleague Danny Weitzner noticed that the media was leading with the pornography angle and needed to find a strong image to counter the controversy. Every time someone did a story on the bill and the proposal, it was it was not about free speech versus censorship. It was about um, uh, a picture of Pamela Anderson uh, with you know censorship bars over her breasts. And that was casting our, our cause in a bad light because we are not we are not talking about pornography, but the broader question of free speech. And Danny and Jonah said, you know, we need another visual, visual that the media can run. We need to make this issue not pornography, but the broader question of the strong First Amendment in America. And so they said, what if what if we made a visual? What if everybody turned their web pages black? for a short period of time to make this strong visual that everybody using the internet would see that this is what you are putting at risk. And it was a good idea and they called me and pitched me on the idea and I thought it was a great idea and we went to the broader coalition and then eventually threw the mailing lists of that coalition out to the whole internet and said, everybody for this period of time on this day, turn the background of your website black and we gave them the HTML code to do it. 
While it was a simple protest confined to the relatively small online community, the major media outlets couldn't ignore the thousands of web pages going dark, and the protest got major coverage on CNN and in publications like Time Magazine, The New York Times, and of course Wired Magazine. Thousands of voices, even online voices, are hard to ignore, but somehow President Clinton did, and the Communications Decency Act stood as written. Naturally, Safdar was disheartened, but he was still confident that he could make a difference. On the eve of the bill's signing, he spoke to Wired Magazine and said, We figured if we did this for five years and made a difference in just one vote, that would be all I'd need to confirm my faith in the fact that democracy is actually working. Because if you can't win, you can at least be a big pain in the ass. And we are among the worst pains in the ass as we know. And as luck would have it, the checks and balances built into America's government actually pulled one off for the people. On June 12, 1996, an appeals court judge in Philadelphia declared the act unconstitutional, and a couple of weeks later, the Supreme Court agreed with that decision and invalidated the act. In the years following the passage of the legislation, there were a series of court challenges uh, to the different provisions of the act, and... uh, they're, they all succeeded where we hoped they would succeed. And a lot of those are brought by the ACLU, and then uh, the initial one was brought by a coalition uh, of, of a lot of different groups, not just the ACLU. And every time the court struck down one of the provisions that we had a problem with, I, I felt like it was a victory. And it was really satisfying. You know, we, we fought a really good fight, but we're ultimately lost when we lost in Congress. And and, uh, and the president signed the bill, but then we won in court. The number of websites that went black was very impressive. It was a big deal at the time. You know, People were making money online, so I think we did it at the, at the only moment that it could be done in history, and it was very satisfying. And all the people that participated in that, uh, many of them went on to join the court fight. Uh, uh, Jonah and, and Danny Weitzner and the folks at CDT put together – uh, an empowerment coalition of citizens who could sign on to this organization that was a signatory to the lawsuit, the first lawsuit in the Supreme Court. So all these people that turned the web black then uh, turned around and many of them signed on to the actual lawsuit and were plaintiffs. And I could say I was a plaintiff in, in this great historic case that overturned one of the worst censorship laws ever to get passed in the U.S. and in digital history at least. If the Communications Decency Act had lived, the web would be a very different place. Sites like Wikipedia, the Gutenberg Archive, or possibly even Google probably couldn't exist as they do today. Sure, you wouldn't have to worry about accidentally stumbling across pornography, but a few graphic pop-up ads are a small price to pay to ensure the artistic, cultural, and informational services that the web offers aren't watered down. While the Great Web Blackout didn't directly stop the law it was protesting, it brought awareness to the issue. The internet was at a turning point, and the actions of those webmasters helped save it from the same government regulation that stagnated radio and television in the name of protecting the children. And believe it or not, this protest is still inspiring similar protests on the web to this day. Recently, the Australian government announced plans to censor the internet for all of its citizens. The citizens responded with a protest they called the Great Australian Internet Blackout, in which protesters turned their social networking profile pictures black to show their support. The organizers claimed that over half a million people participated. 
Now, there's a lot of cynical criticism of slacktivism on the internet today. In 1996, less than 1% of the world's population was online. Today, it's closer to 30%. A lot more voices to sift through. Could a protest like the Paint the Web Black campaign work today? I don't think that particular tactic is effective, but I think there's no doubt that when you look at every, almost every month, there is some effective demonstration of the, the digital communications technology having a factor. I mean, I never thought that when we were doing things like Turn the Web Black or we were sending out emails to ask people to call the member of Congress, I knew we were doing something new, but I had no idea that someday it would topple dictators and that simply the news online would would be enough to spark protests in nearby countries as, as what's going on now in the Middle East. Uh, that was That was far beyond even what I could dream. Everything is a funnel. Right? People start out at the top of the marketing funnel, even in advocacy, with small actions. Maybe you share uh, a status update from a nonprofit group, or maybe you tweet or retweet something from, uh, from a cause that's happening. And, and the, the more you act and the more you get involved, the closer you get to the bottom of the funnel when you're actually finding yourself standing in front of a courthouse holding a sign or giving money or soliciting your friends and neighbors – it's all part of the process of ramping you up as an activist. And just because it's a small baby step and because it doesn't require you to leave your chair, it doesn't mean it's not an important part of, of your growth within that movement. If the day the internet went dark tells us anything, it's that if an online protest is loud enough, it stands at least a chance of breaking through all the online noise and getting some real-world attention. And with all the new ways the government is trying to lock down the internet, it's more important than ever that as citizens of the World Wide Web we stand together, united, against those who would turn the internet black permanently. Welcome back. As you can see, the 90s was a seminal and active time for the internet. A lot of the things we take for granted these days have their origins back then, back when, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Ace of Base were all their age. So that's the timeline we'll be rushing through in the second part of our three-part series, A Brief History of the Internet. But first, let's listen to another one of your early online memories in a segment I like to call Memory Allocation. Downloading memory. Processing. Processing complete. Dispense memory. I had been going on the internet for a while. Because, you know, it was a new thing. I was like, wow, this is awesome. I think the main site that I hung out on the most was Yahoo. Because Yahoo had, like, games and stuff. It was pretty awesome. The the first time, the first thing that I remember um, that, that really, like, impressed me was was uh, the first time I heard about Google. And I know you're probably going to get a million of these about, you know, Google and Microsoft or whatever. But I think the selling point, it's funny because the selling point was for Google was like, like, oh, man, it's a search engine, right? But it searches other search engines <laughs> like like that was how it was explained to me and i think that's what i was like i was like wow that is so cool so like yahoo is just a search engine right but google searches yahoo and whoa like my mind was just like exploded but <laughs> but uh it was pretty it was that was that was the coolest coolest first internet moment I think that I can uh, that I can remember. 
ready, it's time for a brief history of the internet. 1990-1996 In the first part of a brief history of the internet, you'll remember we left off with Tim Berners-Lee of CERN using hypertext to allow a linked directory of physics information to be shared easily. Let's pick up there on our trip through internet history in... 1990. Tim Berners-Lee basically invents the World Wide Web as, and I quote him, a web of nodes in which the user can browse at will. It provides a single user interface to large classes of information. We propose a simple scheme incorporating servers already available at CERN, a program which will provide access to the hypertext world we call a browser. The Archie search engine is released by students at McGill University. Often cited as the first search engine, it indexed FTP sites across the internet to make locating files easier. The name was derived from the word archive, although when the related services Jughead and Veronica were released, most people assumed it was inspired by Archie Comics. The first commercial provider of dial-up internet access launches. They call it the world. Access to the NSFnet is expanded to many countries including Argentina, Canada, Greece, India, Spain, and several others. And most significantly, the first web servers turned on in November at CERN. The address was mxoc01.cern.ch, although it was later changed to the more memorable info.cern.ch, which you can still visit today. 1991 the World Wide Web is officially released by CERN, but we'd still have to wait a few years for Hamster Dance. Al Gore ushers through the U.S. High Performance Computing Act and establishes the National Research and Education Network. It wasn't the first or the last time he'd throw his support behind the internet, but these actions would eventually get him into a little bit of trouble when he was accused of claiming to invent the internet several years later while he was running for president. Traffic on NSFNet grows to over 1 trillion bytes per month which is equivalent to a little over 6 billion books or 128 DVD rips of the Care Bears movie, if you want to measure it that way. Pretty Good Privacy, or PGP, is released by Philip Zimmerman. It uses a symmetric key algorithm called Basomatic to easily encrypt data. It was designed to allow activists to organize online without detection, but would quickly become a popular tool for civil libertarians and free communications activists who call themselves cypherpunks. Gopher, an alternative to the World Wide Web, is released. The main difference from the web was that the underlying structure was very strict. Gopher was the Dewey Decimal System, while the web was the bookshelf in your den you've been meaning to sort out. 1992. Veronica, Gopher's first search engine, is released. Gene Polly uses the phrase, surfing the internet, for the first time. However, Polly takes no responsibility for all the bad clip art involving surfers used in news stories about the web in the years that followed. The number of hosts, or computers connected to the internet, passes 1 million. Congress passes the Scientific and Advanced Technology Act, which allows NSFNet to connect with commercial networks. The Internet Society, a nonprofit dedicated to guiding governing bodies in internet-related standards, education, and policy, is founded. 1993. Internic is created to provide specific internet services. These include a directory and database structure through AT&T, domain registration services through Network Solutions, and informational services by General Atomics and Surfnet. The White House gets online when they set up email at whitehouse.gov. Not .com, .gov. If you went to whitehouse.com in the 90s, you'd land on a very adult website. Although, I just checked it and it seems to direct to a company called White House Lawyers now. 
The first popular web browser, Mosaic, is released and takes the world by storm, causing the web to grow at an astonishing 241-634% annually. It would eventually evolve into Netscape under the hand of Mark Andreessen. There are still new versions of Mosaic being produced today by third parties such as Mosaic CK and VMS Mosaic, but it's probably just better to go ahead and download Firefox or Chrome. Lycos, one of the most popular search engines of the 90s that wasn't Yahoo, is created as a university project. 1994. In the most important development thus far, Pizza Hut allows you to order pizza online without having to talk to some disgruntled teenager on the phone. And in the most depressing development thus far, the first banner ads show up on Hotwired.com. There's one for AT&T and one for Zima, two companies whose products work really well together to allow for drunken 3 a.m. calls to my ex-girlfriend. The World Wide Web overtakes Telnet to become the second most used service on the internet, with FTP being number one. The net gets its first taste of delicious, delicious large-scale spamming when law firm Cantor and Siegel post an ad for a U.S. green card lottery to almost 6,000 news groups in less than 90 minutes, causing their service provider Internet Direct to go down due to the large amounts of complaints received. WXYC, KJHK, and KUGS become the first radio stations to broadcast over the Internet. Netscape Navigator is released, quickly overtaking Mosaic as the most popular internet browser. The first full-text web search engine web crawler is launched. In a related note, Jerry Yang and David Philo launched David and Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web, a directory of links to other websites in January. By April, they decide to change the name of the site to the somewhat goofy Yahoo with an exclamation point, although it would take them a year to register the domain name. 1995. NSFNet reverts back to a research network, and a new backbone for U.S. Internet traffic is created through interconnected network providers. The audio streaming app and future bloatware Real Audio is released, and quickly becomes a standard across the web. Well, it took long enough, but the World Wide Web finally surpasses FTP as the number one Internet service. In a bid to stay competitive, CompuServe, America Online, and Prodigy break down their walled gardens and allow users access to the wider internet. A hacker known as Minor Threat becomes the first person legally barred from accessing the internet when he's found guilty of money laundering. He didn't regain access until 2002, which unfortunately means he was stuck with Internet Explorer. And the hits just keep on coming when the Secret Service and the DEA use the first official internet wiretap to convict a small group who were making cell phone cloning equipment, and presumably sharing pirated MIDI files. A slew of countries, including Tonga, Nigeria, and the Vatican, get their own domain suffixes, which is good because this is also the year that registering domains was no longer free as of September. Operation Homefront is born, allowing soldiers deployed in foreign nations to stay in touch with their families back in the States. 1996. Over 9,000 organizations find themselves without a website when Internet cancels their service because they didn't pay their registration fees. MCI triples the speed of the Internet by upgrading the Internet backbone. Countries like China, Germany, and Saudi Arabia start to restrict citizens' access to Internet services due to the threat it presents. CNET purchases TV.com for $15,000, one of the most expensive domain name purchases up to that point, 
and one they still own to this day. The Communications Decency Act becomes law and criminalizes the posting of indecent material on the internet. High-profile ISPs such as AOL, Netcom, and AT&T Worldwide experience huge service outages as the number of people going online grows at a staggering rate. 24 Hours in Cyberspace, billed as the largest one-day online event, took place. Thousands of photographers worldwide submitted pictures of people whose lives were changing because of the internet. There were pics, and it did happen. The first internet-enabled mobile phone, the Nokia 9000 Communicator, was launched in Finland. And no, it didn't come pre-installed with Angry Birds. And finally, Microsoft's Internet Explorer 2 was included on install disk for Windows 95, which would set off the infamous browser wars with Netscape and attract the attention of government regulators when we pick up in the thrilling conclusion of A Brief History of the Internet, 1997 to 2011. Oh, you can't miss this one. Lexicon. Counter. A graphic that counts the number of page loads a site receives. Counters were used everywhere in the early days of the internet to make the webmaster feel good about himself. Fun fact! 60% of the total shown on the counter can be attributed to the webmaster refreshing the page to see if it went up. Welcome back. Okay, I'm going to go back here a little ways. So if you weren't on the internet in the early 90s, uh, this might go a little over your head. Back then, if you were on a Windows machine, most likely you used a program called Trumpet Windsock to connect to the internet. Generally, your ISP would give it to you on a disk along with a web browser, email client, and if you were lucky, an FTP program. Ask any employee of an ISP back then, and they either thought it was freeware or it generally didn't care about paying the author. That author, Peter Tatum, received very few payments for the program, although it was distributed to millions of users. And this wasn't some big corporation that was being ripped off. Peter is a humble, independent programmer living in Tasmania. The program cost about $25 back then, or $38 today, so he lost out on a ton of income. Well, a few weeks back, some users at Stack Overflow started reminiscing about Trumpet Windsock and eventually tracked Peter down. After hearing his tale, they set up a website and had him set up a PayPal account so former pirates of the program could finally compensate him for his efforts. Now, the website is thanksfortrumpetwindsock.com, and you can donate there or send a donation directly to payments at petertatum.com. That's P-E-T-E-R-T-A-T-T-A-M.com. Now, as a show of goodwill, Peter is offered a general amnesty for all former pirates of Trumpet Windsock, and he promises to use the donations to fund a new project as equally useful as Trumpet Windsock was to all of us. So, you know what? Stop listening to the podcast. Go donate. Go. This guy deserves it, okay? Today's progs are all BBS related. Uh, BBS stands for Bulletin Board System. It was basically the internet before the internet. Almost every community had one. Uh, But uh, the first uh, prog is the BBS Corner. Um, It's basically uh, builds itself as a Telnet BBS guide. You can find it at telnetbbsguide.com. 
And it lists over 350 online BBSs you can still access through a Telnet program, which is pretty easy to find online. Uh, now, uh, these are great because, you know, they have a lot of the old games, a lot of the old MUDs and everything. So uh, if you, if you want to travel back to the days of the BBSs or get a feel for what it was like, you can connect to one of these and kind of kind of get an idea. And in keeping with that theme, my favorite game on BBSs was always Legend of the Red Dragon, uh, or Lord. Uh, now, it, it was, you know, a text-based adventure. Uh, there was a lot of community involvement. It was sort of one of the first uh, multiplayer games. Uh, one nice thing is there was a lot of, uh, there were opportunities to customize it. So, depending on what BBS you were on, it might they might have an adult-themed uh, lord for you. They might have, you know, a goofy one with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy's characters. It's a lot of fun, and I found this site where you can play it online. Uh, now, the site is lord.nuclear.org. That's not spelled how you think it is. It's spelled N-U-K-L-E-A-R. So that's lord.nuclear.org, nuclear with a K. And you can sign up for an account and get started playing some Legend of the Red Dragon. That about wraps it up for the second episode of the Old Wide Web. Uh, before we go, I want to give you the old website of the week. Uh, now, putting together this episode, I realized that Yahoo actually came out quite a bit, so I thought some of you might like to check out what Yahoo used to look like. Uh, now, I hopped on the Wayback Machine that we discussed last episode, and the oldest version I could find was October of 1996. So if you want to check that out, look at how we used to have to navigate the web. I uh, Go to bit.ly slash oldyahoo. Now, as far as I can tell, you can still mostly cruise through the directory here and everything. Now, I'm sure you'll find a lot of dead links, too, but you can see the prototypical Yahoo News, and you can check out all the different categories and maybe find a couple old sites that are still out there. Well, again, I'd like to thank everyone for listening this week. I will be back next week with a new episode. might be a couple days later because we're going on vacation here. If you want to submit a memory allocation, you remember that's a 30-second to 2-minute clip of your earliest or most prominent online memory. Uh, you can send that to Old Wide Web at gmail.com and you can also submit any suggestions for progs or any comments criticism uh, about the show or if you want to write me a letter uh, to be read on the show i'm more than happy to do that as long as it's relevant to the conversation well thanks again and we'll see you next week on the old wide web <laughs>